Welcome to the Evolving Accountant Podcast. We all know that some accountants can be boring, but definitely not this one. Why talk trial balances and P&L when we can get ripped jeans into the boardroom and hear business insights from people who have really walked the talk? Get ready. Here comes an all-new episode with your host, Darren Wingfield. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Evolving Accountant Podcast, powered by Harlan's Accountants. Today we have an exciting guest with us, and it is James Douglas, founder of True Barbecue. Welcome to the show, James. And first of all, to kick things off, can you tell our listeners out there a little bit about yourself? But more importantly, what's your drive to get out of bed in the morning? Right, well, listen, lovely to meet you, Darren. Thank you very much for the invite. Hopefully I can... uh impart something that is uh, of use to some people so look me i start i'm so i'm 44 i uh, i do i run a business called registry barbecue um i have a couple of other interests as well in a brewery and across fmcg i started my sort of entrepreneurial life i suppose in back in 2005 i'd been working for a property agency in leeds and i was working six seven days a week and I thought god I'm, you know for what I'm getting paid I could probably work for myself and earn the same and do a bit less because I was I was young and thought that's how business worked and so I quit and I set up my own business and so I set up in 2005 and I grew that business from my front bedroom at home um, and I grew that over to 2012 when we sold out to a private equity business that was backing um, a really big sort of property company in the UK called Countrywide. They were buying up, you know, hundred million pounds worth of um, letting agents and I was one of them. And then, yeah, straight after that, I opened Red's Barbecue using the rationale that I've eaten in loads of restaurants. So what's the difference in running one? And the first night that I ever worked in a restaurant was in my own when I owned it. So I was pitifully useful at that point and managed to sort of like navigate my way around loads of different jobs within the restaurant, gradually getting banned by the other staff from doing those. So I wasn't allowed to work on the door anymore and I wasn't allowed to have keys to the restaurant because I used to come in closed on night and get drunk with my mates. And so, so yeah, it was a bit of a trial by fire. And then that's kind of moved on to uh, working a lot in retail with the supermarkets, so FMCG. And then we were selling a lot of beer, so we thought we'll open up our own brewery. So we have a, a brewery as well. And and yeah, so that's kind of, that's the whirlwind tour of me. Cool. So we've also gone a bit into your journey there. Other, what can we, can you describe now what, or how you would describe what your business does on a day, day-to-day, or let's say, let's call it the old-fashioned elevator pitch. Okay, so we... I mean, look, for, for for what our business does, we are we're the second biggest barbecue brand in the UK outside of Weber. We take, you know, we used to take cheap cuts of meat and like brisket and, and pork shoulder and stuff. And we would apply, you know, 12, 14 hours of, of love and smoke and rubs and stuff to those. And we would premiumize them and, and then sell them. Unfortunately, those cuts are not particularly cheap anymore. Part and parcel, that's probably down to me and my fault for... Uh, raising awareness of, of you know brisket and pulled pork and American barbecue in the UK, which has driven the costs up. So kind of a victim of my own success in that respect. But you know we operate um, a, a chain of, of sites. Some of those are 
independent Reds businesses and some of them are um, joint ventures with Brewdog. And so we have like Brewdog bars with Reds kitchens. And we basically satisfy people's hunger for, you know, typical and traditional American barbecue in the UK. Barbecue is a big scene in the UK, um, certainly way bigger than it was when we first started. But that, you know, there was a real kind of, I suppose, a pitch that we had to do on, on consumers because, you know, what they typically thought was barbecue was was actually grilling. And um, and so our first, the first few years of what we did was was around time to sort of like change people's hearts and minds and, and opinions as to what, you know, low and slow American barbecue was. But yeah, I mean, there's not many that do what we do. And after 10 years of running this um, kind of restaurant business, I absolutely know why there's not many that do it. Um, because it's really... <laughs> It's quite difficult and um, and it's not massively profitable, but, you know. So in fairness, you've got to be in it for the love of it. Um, oh my God, yeah. If it wasn't for the love of it, I mean, it, I don't know why I'd be in it. But the, the thing, the difference between our business and a lot of other businesses, and this is something that I, we didn't know when we first started, was that, you know, you take a kilo of brisket, for instance, and, you know, I used to pay 5.80 a kilo for that and I pay about 11.40, 11.50 a kilo for it now. You take that kilo of brisket, you smoke it for 12 hours and what you end up with is 500 grams of brisket because it loses about 50% of its weight. And so you're, you know, call it 12 quid a kilo, your 12 quid a kilo becomes 24 quid a kilo. And that is more expensive than fillet steak. But I can't charge fillet steak prices for what we do because it's just brisket. And so, you know, this... It like you know because you can't we can't really use like British and Irish beef in what we do because it's not fatty enough, so we have to import it from you know different places in the world where they operate um, farming on more of a like corn fed, so that the the, the meat's fattier. Um, because if it wasn't fatty and you cooked it for twelve hours, it would just end up like a dried up old piece of you know steak that nobody wants. Um, but yeah, so it's definitely for the love of it. Certainly not because it, um, you know, buys me uh, Ferraris and Porsches. <laughs> yeah, cool. So one of the questions I've been asking, obviously a lot of the f- like FMCG marketplace, people that's involved in it, is linked to around, in your opinion, what do you see as the most important personality trait or the strength for someone to be able to work in the sector? when I say work, I mean actually thrive and become a success in it. Yeah. Um, and obviously it probably links well with yourself. Obviously you've got the barbecue side of things, but obviously you're talking about the brewery and stuff like that as well. So, Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's not even, I know you've asked me about like specifically FMCG, but I think that the reality is for any kind of retail, you know, public facing, you know, consumer led business, you just have to have, an incredible amount of tenacity and you have to have a massive amount of commitment and belief in in what you do you will find you know certainly within fmcg that it's it's a it's a very very crowded market um, and restaurants in themselves and breweries are very very crowded and so a your product's got has to stand apart from what other people are doing um otherwise you you stand no chance at all you know never more so now that you know post covid and as we come into you know a cost of living crisis for people people would have maybe given you a couple of opportunities to deliver a few years ago and i think you know certainly like post covid that that three opportunities might have gone to two and certainly now into a 
cost of living crisis, then it, you know if you don't deliver on that one opportunity, on that one visit, or that one sale, or that one purchase, or that one interaction, however you want to look at it, then people will walk, and you know they'll vote with their feet and. And I think that you know any anyone kind of coming into that market and not absolutely understanding that is is probably going to be in for a really tough time. And those that are already in that market who feel that they can be you know kind of complacent and just keep churning out the same old thing um, are probably going to be in for a bit of a rough ride as well. But you know that you have to be really thick skinned. You can't take no for an answer. I think that works in any kind of you know, founder-led or entrepreneurial, you know, business that, you know, that the the first answer is normally no, and you'll hit a lot of no's. And that that could be from, you know, a concept basis where you're kind of speaking to your friends and family saying, look, you know, I've got this idea and I want to do this. And they're kind of like, well, well no, you know, I don't think you should do that. I think you should stay doing your job. And, you know, because you've got bills and you've got this. And and so you, you have to try and sort of overcome that. And then you go to a bank, you know, if, you, if you're not lucky enough to be able to finance the whole thing yourself, you know, you go to a bank and you, you walk in there and the guy behind the desk has probably got no idea what it is that you're actually trying to do. And so that, and that's not a dig at, at bankers, you know, but they're not specialists in everything. And so that sort of lack of understanding breeds, you know, a huge amount of caution. And so you will get, you know, knocked back on, on the first few, which is likely. I mean, the first loan that, that I ever went for, um, I got knocked back Um but that knockback was done in a way that it allowed me to walk straight into another bank and reposition what it was that I was asking for, you know, reposition um, how much skin in the game I had already. And, uh, you know, I say that in a way that makes me sound like I was lying. I wasn't, I kind of went in and I just repositioned what I'd done to put a portion more value to actually the work that I'd done up until that point. And then I walked out, you know, with with the funding. But but you do you get a lot of no's from there. You'll get no's from landlords, you know, because landlords are cautious about you know renting their property um, to people who are just starting out or even you know businesses that have been going for a while, you know, because you've got no covenant. And and it's all about trying to kind of like overcome these things. You'll get knockbacks from you know potential wholesalers or suppliers or, or whatever. And you, you just can't take it personally. You have to understand from their point of view, they're you know, risk averse or they're trying to avoid, you know, any potential damage to their business. And you also, you don't know what they're going through. You don't know whether they're, they're saying no because they have to, but in reality, they'd love to take something on, you know, they'd love, they'd love to put you in their building, but actually they've had their fingers burnt a few times. So it's about pivoting and it's about being thick skinned and it's about being tenacious and, and trying your best to, you know, know your audience and just kind of understand from their point of view, what it means to them, if that makes sense. Certainly does. Certainly does. So you loosely used the word entrepreneur in your last, in that last section. Every entrepreneur and every business owner and every manager and everyone in any state of any industry is always looking for that productivity hack or anything like that. Yeah. Is there anything that sort of jumps out to you on like how you save time, how you keep control of your spinning plates? I mean, look, if I could develop a, an app that was just full of productivity hacks and stuff, I, I'm sure I'd be up there with Mr. Musk. I don't. I don't really see that there's a particular hack, but I think you know. I was given some advice from um, you know a, a really 
like super successful businessman, entrepreneur, well, it's Richard Branson, actually. And he said to me that the best way to be productive and the best way to kind of get the most out of your day is to make sure that you surround yourself with really good people. And that is often what people do. People will surround themselves with, you know, great people, you know, good professionals, people with a brilliant you know, track record of achieving and a track record of, you know, delivering in, in previous similar roles or within sort of, you know, other companies. And then what they do is they come in and they don't give them the opportunity to produce and they micromanage them and they will stifle, you know, their creativity because it's kind of not in line with what I do and, and this, that, and the other one. And so for me, the, the best productivity hack is, is to find the right people um, and allow them to do the job and allow them to, you know, be brilliant because actually, you know, the productivity of one person is often, you know, nowhere near as good as the productivity of five people. And so if you come in and you try to micromanage them and you try to sort of take over and you try to do their job, then what's the point in, in having them in the first place? You might as well just do it yourself, but then you, you'll realize quite quickly that, you know, the reason why you got them in is because you had too much work on or you wanted to you know spread some of the responsibility but you know if you if you employ a professional let them do a professional job and you know it's, it's like anything you know a six-month project can never be nailed in six weeks so you know let it run you know don't don't sort of get a week into it two weeks into it three weeks into it and think shit this isn't working you know you've got to try and let these things run i mean if it goes catastrophically wrong obviously you need to dive in but sometimes the, the best productivity and the you know the, the the best outcome has been allowing something to to run its course and cool if we were talking or james of today was talking to james of a sick a 16 year old coming out of school what would be mm. that one piece of advice that you would give that you wish you had known when you'd started out so my, my interpretation of what you know an entrepreneur was was someone who did everything and they took something from you know an idea and they ran it all and you know and they miraculously gained you know all of these skills and attributes um, to run a business and you know you, you could you start a business on Monday and then by Wednesday, you know how to do bookkeeping, you know how to do this, you know how to do, you know, rotor planning, you know how to do, you know, HR. And so you, you, you almost become a bit of a megalomaniac around sort of taking everything on. And I think that that in itself, like, well, it's fundamentally not true. The advice that I would give my younger self would be that, you know, there's no shame in, in having a brilliant idea and getting it to a point before understanding and knowing that there's probably someone else out there who can take it on to the next level. And I think that, you know, there's been occasions during my career where I've probably not done that and it's been at the detriment to me or the business because I've felt that, you know, as the founder, as the, you know, the person who came up with the idea or started it, it needed to be me that that moved it on. It needed to be me that grew it or that navigated it through problems. And I actually realize now that there's certain key points where I, I should have known that there was an opportunity for that business or that project or something, but it probably needed to be, you know, guided, you know, with someone else's hands and experience. So I would, my advice would be, you know, do your absolute best until someone else can do a better job and then work with them, learn from them and 
you'd have to do it all yourself. Definitely. Like, I really like that one. So looking back on the business and is there anything that sat here now and reflecting on it that you would say was a success, but at the time you really didn't expect it to be? So, so look, I mean, you're, you're talking to the guy that sells smoked meat using religion. And I think that when we first started the Reds business, I suppose understanding kind of where the Reds brand came from is, is probably a, a better prelude to this answer. We we went all over the US for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks, eating four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, you know, uh, barbecue meals a day. We rented a, a hideous RV that was, you know, far worse than anything that you would have seen on Breaking Bad. We put on an inordinately large amount of weight and probably, you know, blocked arteries 10 years ago that are still struggling to kind of pump blood around my body now. So, but as we went round all these different restaurants and we went around all these different kind of venues that were doing, you know, amazing barbecue in Texas, Louisiana, you know, the Carolinas and stuff. We really quickly realized that, you know, you were talking to second, third generation barbecuers and, and they, and it wasn't a job for them. It was like a religion, you know, it was, it was so ingrained in what they did and it was such a part of their life and their history and, and, and everything that they did in inside and outside of work that we found ourselves using the kind of you know religious language and we'd be sort of saying you know we're here on a pilgrimage to find out everything that we wanted to know about american barbecue and then we're going to go back to the uk and and, and have a, a crusade to try and convert people and so we we're using all this like you know religious language and then, and then when we came back to the uk we found what became you know the the church of true barbecue and we decided to use that you know religious connotations in a way that would give us plenty of assets in the locker you know religion's huge and i think one of the things that we first started well sorry when we first started was to make sure that you know whatever we did wasn't offensive we didn't sort of particularly any particular denomination but to to go out on a limb and, and use religion as a as a brand outside of anything other than you know churches and, and various stuff that was never done and certainly wasn't done with food and i think as creative as I thought it was, I did have my reservations around it and I didn't quite understand how it would be perceived. And I think, you know, we've, we've served millions of people over the last 10 years, three or four emails about how people, you know, found it in bad taste. And we've always, we've always gone back to those people and we've tried to explain to them that, look, you know, we're, we're not taking the mickey, we're not taking the piss, you know, we are real advocates for this. We're almost, you know, evangelical about what we do. and some of them have come round. You know, we had two priests in the restaurant once sat having some food and, you know, they've got in front of them, they've got this little leather bound menu, uh, which we called the the good book. And I asked them and I said, you know, what do you think to it? And and they said, look, you know, if the, if the food wasn't as good as it was, I'm sure you'd have a problem, but you know, we feel that your place in heaven is sealed with the brisket like this. So that was quite nice. So yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it's not necessarily about what part of the business it was probably more just the look and the feel of the business it was a big risk but it, it kind of paid off cool thanks for sharing that what's around the corner for you james what's coming next i mean look over the last couple of years what we you know personally we kind of got through covid realized that you know as a restaurant business it was going to be quite difficult to grow our sites uh, as, as specifically as just Red's restaurants. I mean, we, you know, it's not all been joy. You know, we, pre-COVID, we had to go through a, an administration. And so, 
you have this sort of meteoric rise over five years and then the business went into administration and we had to kind of relook at things, you know, rejig it all, remodel it, shrink the estate down. And just as we were kind of coming to the brow of the hill with that, COVID kicked in, which, you know, obviously wasn't great for anyone, whether it was, you know, restaurants, hairdressers, mechanics, whatever. Yes, you know, restaurants had it quite bad, but but so did a lot of other people. And so that to that in itself, we needed to kind of pivot and and look at how could we grow, you know, a restaurant business, how could I grow a, a brewery business? And so we got into a joint venture partnership with Brewdog, you know, with this sole idea really of of kind of you know utilizing both brands to to grow the business. And so, you know, they have like huge global awareness and so that has that has helped us. And so, you know, we've got sort of four of those sites. And then with the brewery, we were selling a lot of large pack products. So kegs exporting, you know, out to Europe and selling in the UK. But during COVID, nobody wanted kegs because obviously none of the boozers were open. So we needed to look at like how do we keep that business going? And so we pivoted and we did a lot of contract brewing. So what we would do is we would brew the overflow for the larger breweries. And that that in itself has kind of created a business, you know, probably more more of a business than than we had before. And so the you, you I mean, I've gone off on a massive tangent here about I will, I promise I will get to answer the actual question that you asked. The reality is that I've kind of, you know, grown multiple businesses. I've tried to navigate different businesses through tough times, you know, reformatted, restreamlined businesses and I think, you know, for me personally, what's around the corner is that actually this has been a very long and stressful and and very expensive education. And I'd love to think that, you know, I can start to impart some of that experience and knowledge onto other people who are, you know, either in a position that I was or approaching a position I was, whether it's growth or contraction, and try and help other people to, to navigate it you know, navigate the choppy waters of business because it is difficult. And, you know, I used to go home, I used to ask, you know, family members and friends and and some of them would turn to me and say, I've got absolutely no idea what you're talking about. I've never been in that situation. I cannot offer any advice. And so, you know, I'm probably at a position now where I can give some advice. So I think for me around the corner is certainly trying to just help other people grow their businesses and, help other people save the businesses, but also help other people to create a business because having a brilliant idea is like 2% of, of what it takes to actually get that, you know, product or business, you know, product into market or that business into the high street or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think I'd like to help other people. Nice. I really like that. So one of our core values is we love to learn. So my always second off last question on every episode is, how do you learn? Who do you take advice from? And if you had that sort of one business book, if someone was looking for some advice, or you were, that's a good read. It's worth spending the weekend sat on the sofa having to read of that. Is there any anything of that ilk that jumps out? So I'm not a massive reader, and there is I can read. Obviously, I do read occasionally, um, but the, a lot of the biggest reason why I'm not a massive reader is I'm just out of time. So I'm in the car a lot or when I get home, you know, I spend some time with the kids and then go to bed. But I do love to like absorb knowledge. So I, I tend to listen to a lot of audiobooks and I also hit YouTube up constantly. I'd say probably one of the biggest um, opportunities for learning for me is YouTube. And whether that's, you know, I have it on in the car 
you know, and listening to it or whether I kind of take, you know, 10, 15 minutes to watch it or I think that that has become, you know, I mean, you, you know, if you want to learn to play the guitar, years ago you'd have to find guitar lessons and do this, but if you want to learn to play the guitar now, you go on YouTube and you can be, you know, strumming out and smoke on the water within a couple of minutes. So, so I think for me, the biggest sort of font of of knowledge, once you get past a lot of the shit that's out there, is is probably YouTube. That's where I tend to go to. And I think off the back of that, you've got, you know, podcasts that are on there, like, you know, Diary of a CEO and I mean, to a certain extent, potentially Joe Rogan. So yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot to be taken from that. But in terms of like who I actually uh, watch, weirdly, I, I don't do a lot of business podcasts. What I do is a lot of like life podcasts. So, you know, there's a brilliant one, like it's like 10 minutes with, 15 minutes with from Unilad. And they have people who, you know, plane crash survivor, or it could be a guy who's in a sort of South, uh, you know, a London gang, or it could be a, you know, an ex-drug dealer or something. And you, you have these like brilliant 15-minute conversations where they're just packed with, you know, little tidbits of how those people, you know, overcame or excelled in parts of their life. Um, so that's brilliant. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit like less about like Warren Buffett's life story and more about, you know, how someone overcame some adversity in their early life to succeed later on. I think there's probably more lessons to be learned there. As for books, I mean, most people would go for like the big business books and the, this, you know, the monkey paradigm, whatever it's called. And I've never read it. I would go for a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by, by Dale Carnegie. I think it was written in the 50s. And it's just a brilliant book that I've probably listened to five, six, ten times over the years. Just a really kind of wonderful narrative on how to make a good impression with people, how to deal with people, you know, verbally, physically, how to try and engage people, you know, how to boost people's confidence. Just some really you know, wonderful little anecdotes of, you know, there was a guy in America who had a factory with like a thousand people in it and he knew every single person's name. And I mean, I could never imagine doing that, but actually, you know, how great that would have made people feel as that person, you know, the owner of that business walked around knowing the name. So I've always tried to try and make sure I know everyone's name on a little bit about, you know, people's backstories and lives just so that you've got some common ground and you can have a chat with them. And so, yeah, I think How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie, it's probably my number one book. Cool. Final question. How do people find you, James? How, where's the best place to find more about yourself, a place to find more about the brand? So, I, I mean, I'm on all social media platforms, but I can think over the years I've realised that like, Instagram is probably more about like what you've got and LinkedIn is probably way more about what you can do. So I'm, I'm a lot more active on LinkedIn. I have, I think I've, uh, yeah, I think I've sort of changed my outlook on things. So I'm sort of less, less on Instagram these days. But yeah, LinkedIn, I always respond to every comment and I um, reply to 90% of the emails unless it's someone trying to sell me, uh, you know, coding from the other side of the world. But yeah, any genuine message, I always go back to. Cool. Just want to say thank you for your time, Steve. It's been great picking your brains and finding out more about you and the brand. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for the invite. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Evolving Accountant. You can find out more and get show notes for this and all our other episodes at theevolvingaccountant.co.uk.